just as, uh, as the kids are, are moving out, this morning we're going to be dealing with the last part of first chapter, excuse me, first chapter, first Samuel, chapter 14. Uh, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 24 through 52. But when you think this morning about things like how the world perceives the church, one of the, the ways that the world can often perceive the church is as rigid, as stiff, as uh, basically rule keepers, and yet the very essence of our salvation, the very thing that Christ calls us to, is to walk by faith in obedience with God's Word, but it's to be done in a way where we love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and done in a way in which we love others as ourself. The word legalism kind of conjures up a lot of different thoughts. And so if you're outside of the church, if you've never been inside of a church and this is your first time, you probably are aware of the word legalistic. The same is true for those who have been in the church or spent some time in the church. That, that word legalism or legalistic is a word that's often used. And that word is really used to kind of speak of the wrong kind of use of laws or rules. But legalism is basically an addition, as we talk about it, in terms of our relationship or our following of Christ. It's an addition to what God says. So there's some different forms of legalism. There's legalism that says that I've got to actually follow a set of rules or laws to experience Christ's salvation. Uh, There's legalism that says, listen, you can be saved through faith, but in order to to grow in Christ, in order to be sanctified, to become more like Christ, you better follow a set of rules like, hey, years ago, don't go see certain movies and, you know, don't drink alcohol, and the list goes on and on and on. And these rules become places where, from a personal choice and from a personal boundary, might be an appropriate thing for your life. But all of a sudden, they become a corporate thing. And it's one of the reasons that we often see our culture, see the church as a place that is basically known for what it's against rather than what it's for. And sometimes legalism actually takes the form of basically personal opinions becoming kind of equated with biblical or scriptural instruction. And so sometimes we actually see personal opinions or personal preferences become kind of a a legalism. Things that we like, we choose to find spiritual reasons for them, right? And sometimes this comes out in ways where all of a sudden we're always feeling like we have to come up with a spiritual answer for things. And that can be a form of legalism too, where we begin to make our preferences actually uh, more than what they are. They actually become means of of spiritual growth. Well, this morning we're going to be looking here in chapter 14 at Saul and Jonathan, and we're going to continue this. Where last week we looked at Jonathan and we saw in contrast Saul and Saul's response as Jonathan is moving forward in the confidence of faith, Saul 
is working against that. He himself is not walking in faith, but is walking in his own strength. And in the same way today, we're going to see that contrast between Saul and Jonathan. And so, let's go ahead and stand this morning as we read this passage together. And we look at this contrast between religious legalism and faith's freedom. Here's what it says. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give through me. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I've tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. And the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? 
Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from the pursuing of the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Agmaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you reveal your truth to us through your word. Father, we thank you that you have granted us your word so that we might know your will. Lord God, this morning as you work in our hearts, may we be renewed through the word this morning. May it be you who brings your word and power through your spirit this morning. Father, may you move me aside and may it be you speaking to each of us this morning. Lord God, as we understand your freedom, may we rejoice in the freedom that you've granted through faith. Faith in your son Jesus. And Lord God, may we be moved to push off those things in our life that we put greater confidence in than you. So Lord, this morning, may you speak directly to our hearts and may we be able to see with your eyes and we ask this in your name, amen. Freedom in Christ through humble faith is God's desire for each of us. Freedom in Christ through humble faith is God's desire for each of us, plain and simple. That freedom that comes through faith is what God is wanting and seeking and desiring for each of us. And in this story, what we see here with Saul is that Saul is actually not trusting in faith, but he's trusting predominantly in himself and in religious ritual. Last week, we looked at this victory that was granted to the Israelites, but it was granted to the Israelites through Jonathan and his armor bearer stepping out in the confidence of faith. And we're told in verse 23, it says, So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth Aven." And immediately in verse 24, then it says, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So all of a sudden, we face this contradiction. 
This contradiction that is existing where this battle has been great, there's been this tremendous victory that's been won, and yet the men of Israel are hard-pressed. Well, the language actually in the Hebrew gives us a little clearer picture because there's something that goes without being said in the text. What's being said here is actually that the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon and then... Saul calls a fast for his people, for those who are fighting. And so, the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day because of the fast. You can imagine here, in this context, that he's put out this fast, and you can imagine that these men who have just won this battle, who've gone into battle, who are required, and that, you know, there's soldiers fighting this battle... They don't have what soldiers today have, which are the MREs, the meals ready to eat. They have to find the spoil. So what happened is they would go and defeat areas of nation, and they'd take the food from those people. That was their sustenance. But Saul says, listen, I want you to pursue these people. I want you to follow after them. I want you to destroy them to avenge me, my cause. And none of you get slowed down by catching and picking up anybody else's food. And you can imagine that in that moment that there most likely was a a kind of a battle that ensued amongst the, the people, the men. What, we can't eat food? And so Saul, because he realized that they're hard pressed, they're pressed upon, actually says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Well, scripturally, fasts are something that we do willingly. They're done willingly when we seek the Lord. And one of the things that's happening with Saul is, as Saul is drifting away from God, as from the moment that Samuel departs from Saul, because Samuel, as his priest, departs because Saul has been walking in disobedience with God, and he's lacking reverence for God and for His practices, from that moment on, Saul becomes real religious. We saw that last week. He calls in a priest who has been rejected simply to have a priest that's nearby. And he wants the priest calling out on behalf of God, and yet he has no real desire for God. His desire for the Lord is waning, it's fading, and yet what's happening is as his desire for the Lord is beginning to fade, he's becoming more intense in his religious practices. His focus becomes living in the the confidence of the religious ritual. And so you can imagine that Saul has called this fast as a part of continuing in this practice. And as his kind of religiosity begins to increase, he begins to continue to depart from the Lord. Now what's interesting in this is What begins to happen, Saul, in that instance, when he says, listen, if you don't fast, 
you're going to die. And if you don't fast, you're going to die at my hand. In that moment, he made his law equal with God's law. He asserted himself into the position of God and he added this extra biblical thing that said, if you don't fast, it's worthy of death. The one thing that we have that is worthy of death is sin. All of us, because of sin, are worthy of death and yet through Jesus, because of his worthiness, we can have life. And so, what we begin to see is this legalism that begins to rise up within Saul. And notice what happens. It says, now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. God desires us to walk in freedom, not in fear. And these people were walking in fear because of this religious legalism that Saul was enforcing upon them. Notice that it wasn't fear of the Lord, it was fear of the oath. It was fear of Saul, it was fear of man. What was this person going to think? What was going to be the result and the outcome? See, fasts are to be done willingly. Fasts should not provoke fear. But yet, Saul made it a duty, and he placed a deadly consequence for those who disobeyed on it. And by doing so, he placed an undue burden on the men of Israel. He had asserted himself in the position of God, which is the result of pride. That's what pride is. It says that I know better than God. And when I begin to say that I know better than God, that my way is okay, in essence, I'm asserting myself into his position. When I begin to assert my ways, my things, my desires into his place... I'm by de facto saying, God, I'm equal to you. And so pride elevates us in our hearts to a godlike position. Now, what do we see here? Well, as we move into verse 27 and 28, what we see first is that religious legalism minimizes the victory. Religious legalism minimizes the victory. Faith frees us to enjoy the full blessing of God. Religious legalism minimizes the victory. Faith frees us to enjoy the full blessing of God's triumph. In verse 28, it tells us that the people were faint, and yet... When Jonathan ate the honey, verse 27 tells us his eyes became bright. Now, I remember reading this story as a kid. And, and what I thought of here was like Winnie the Pooh. Like, ate the honey, there's like this halo glow around his face, it's all good, right? 
Well, in some respect that's going on, it's not Winnie the Pooh, but what's happening here and what this is actually communicating is that the honey has been provided. It provides the sustenance to Jonathan. And so his eyes become bright. It's, it's, it's basically like, you ever seen somebody who is so tired they look like they're dying? They've got big round rings around their eyes and they're just, they're exhausted. They're, it's like death. And you watch them and you go and you see them after an evening of sleep and you're like, oh, totally different person, right? They're awakened and refreshed and it's just like, a, it's, it's, it's a contrast, a stark contrast. That's what's going on here with Jonathan. Jonathan eats the honey they are all in this distress. He brightens up. It's clear that he's been strengthened. And then he looks at the people. And one of them says to him, listen, Jonathan. Jonathan, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, curse be the man who eats food this day. Notice Jonathan's response here. He says, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little bit of honey? What he's saying is you can have this too. It was given to you for your sustenance and my father put an undue burden on you. It wasn't for the purpose of holding you down but it was for the purpose of strengthening you and refreshing you. Interestingly enough, the land that was given to the Israelites was a land flowing with milk and honey. It would be fitting in this moment for God to use the honey as a sign, not simply of sustenance, but as a remembrance of the promise that he'd given to them. To remind them that this is yours. I came to give you life abundantly, not bondage. And so we see this minimization of the victory. And because they're not able to take in the, the sustenance and to experience this life abundantly where they each experience this brightness, this refreshment, this strengthening. Jonathan says, listen, the victory is not great today. Now think about that for a minute. Jonathan and his armor bearer, as we saw last week, went up and God used them to create confusion amongst the Philistines who began attacking one another and killing one another and they defeat the Philistines with a faithful man, the son of a king, and an armor bearer. And Jonathan says, today has not been a great victory. The reason is this. What God was designing for strength and refreshment, Saul had prohibited and placed this burden upon the people. And in Galatians 3, 10 through 14, it says this, 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. You either live by faith or you live completely and perfectly by the law, which is impossible. So you have to live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. See, when we minimize the victory of God with these legalistic laws, these legalistic practices, we actually hinder ourselves and others from experiencing the full blessing of God. The Spirit wants to work in our life, and we begin to bind the work of the Spirit and put our confidence not in God, but in ourself. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, and I want to encourage you just to write that passage down. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says this. It says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is eating easy and my burden is light. See, the law was laden with heaviness. And yet in Jesus, the burden is light because we come to him in submission to him and allow him to do the work through us. Through what? The promised spirit. God has given us the promised spirit. That means, guess what? We get to experience some of the promises of a land flowing with milk and honey through the spirit. The promised spirit is working in our life. God desires us to walk in that freedom. Well, because Saul placed an undue burden on the shoulders of the army, when God's victory is minimized, it will lead to temptation and sin. Look at the men of Israel's response. It says this, They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with blood. The very thing that people try to prevent, which is sin, through legalism, is the very thing it actually leads to. I, I like the way that David Guzik puts it. He says, we often think that legalistic rules will keep people free from sin. Actually, the opposite is true. Legalistic rules lead us into sin because they either provoke our rebellion or they lead us into legalistic pride. You can imagine there for a moment... They knew not to eat with the blood, but in that moment, they said, to heck with it. We're hungry. 
And they respond reactively rather than in faith. Legalism will almost always lead to sin and death. It actually breaks down the heart of what Christ is doing and what Christ has given through his word. I remember growing up and one of the common legalisms used to be things like not drinking alcohol. And I grew up in a house where initially I was taught that alcohol was sin, just simply having it nearby. And I remember coming to Christ and struggling with that question of, well, if alcohol is sin, why does it not mention that in Scripture? But it does mention drunkenness as a sin. And I remember my parents at that time telling me, well, it's really drunkenness that's a sin. And I said, for all these years, all the kind of division and almost the, the arrogance that went with it, the judgmental attitude towards people who were drinking, like, what happens? They said, well, we just felt it was really important that you don't drink. And that wasn't a knock on my parents. That was kind of a cultural-wide movement that we saw across the church. What happens is, is that we become fearful, and so we put in laws as protections, which may be wonderful personal choices, right? We all need boundaries. We all need those boundaries. But they need to be for us personally, not corporately if it's not sin. And so one of the things that we can often do in our own life is we can actually see that when we begin to put undue burden and undue expectations, for example, we want to be disciplined in reading God's Word. And my hope is that, that you're in God's Word on a regular basis. But I want to encourage you with something. If you're not, don't give up. Don't turn around and throw it by the wayside and say, that's never going to be me, and go the other way. And walk out feeling condemned because you didn't read your word today, the word today. What can often happen is we can feel like it's all lost, can we not? I've worked with a lot of people over my life that have been sexually abused or sexually assaulted. Another legalism that we don't think is really illegalism, but something that we have to watch for is the idea of virginity. God's standard was purity. God's standard was holiness. And, and when we understand that, we can actually make a legalism and make a person feel less because they've lost their virginity, when in reality, what God is calling us to is purity. And a person who has been sexually assaulted or sexually molested has not lost their purity. small and subtle, is it not? But we often see people who are victims begin to go out and say, well, to heck with it, I'm done, because I can no longer meet that standard. God's standard is purity. And we need to be careful that we don't allow subtle legalisms to, to rise into place. Now, it doesn't mean that we devalue those things. It just means how much importance do we give to them, right? 
How much importance do we give? Do we elevate certain sins above other sins? Do we say one sin is more egregious than another? The second thing that we see is that religious legalism produces self-righteousness. Religious legalism produces self-righteousness. Faith frees us to confess wrongdoing and experience mercy. Religious legalism produces self-righteousness. Faith frees us to confess wrongdoing and experience mercy. In verse 36 through 46, it said, And Saul inquired of God, but he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all of you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. Amazingly, Saul continues in this practice of acting like he's following God or desiring to seek God. And so he's built this altar. And then he says, let's go down to the Philistines. And he asks the people. And the priest holds him up and says, wait a second, let's draw near to God. And so Saul says, okay, I'll inquire of God. And God has not answered. And it does not cross Saul's mind that he might be the problem. In fact, this is actually what's going on when he separates the people from Jonathan and Saul. He knows what Jonathan's done, so he's like, it can't be Jonathan, and I'm the king, and it can't be me. It's got to be the people. In fact, he uses the umim and the thumim, the very things that the priest uses to determine the will of God as the means of casting a lot. And in some way... That yumim and thumim that are used together, all of a sudden say it's not the people. Legalism breeds in us a self-righteousness. It can rise up in all kinds of subtle ways. I'm doing what scripture told me to do, therefore those others are not, and they're not as spiritual. It can rise up in ways of feeling secure that today because I read God's word that, well, I'm all good. I don't really have to think about the rest of the day. I don't really have to think about loving my wife well or loving my husband well. I don't really have to think about how I treat others. I don't even really have to think about what God desires for me. So long as I've accomplished my checklist. It breeds the self-righteousness within us. And self-righteousness will result in two things. The first is double-mindedness. Double-mindedness. Just a moment ago, Saul had told his men not to eat. They eat, and then he says, let's go down and plunder the Philistines again. And this time, we're going to leave no one there. And when we do it, we're going to seek the Lord. There was no seeking of the Lord in creating a foolish oath. And then there's a seeking of the Lord as to whether or not to plunder. And then he wants the people's opinion. There's this double-mindedness that's taking place. Who are you going to serve? See, if you recall, back in... Verse 24, as we started, it said, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, 
and I am avenged on my enemies. His battle had nothing to do with God. It had everything to do with himself, and yet, at the same time, he's asking for God's direction. The motivation and the practice are not in alignment. He's seeking his will and yet seeking God in this confused state. When we're self-righteous, when when self-righteousness is at work within our life, we become double-minded. We say things in one area and then we say things in other areas and we do things in one area and we do something else. Double-mindedness is a great symptom of pride at work in our heart. When we sense double-mindedness in our lives or when somebody is saying, hey, I just want to encourage you, you're being double-minded in this, know that that's actually an encouragement. Because what they're sharing with you is, hey, there's some unseen pride that's at work. And life isn't coming through pride. Christ isn't working in pride. He's working to tear down that pride. Psalm 119, 113 says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. His point is simply this, the severity at which God looks at the double-minded. Derek Thomas says, saying, First of all, when your relationship with God isn't based on grace, when your relationship with God isn't based on grace, you end up behaving like Saul. Saul's a classic example of someone who's trying to perform, of somebody who's trying to do, who's using religion to earn the favor of God. He uses religion as a crutch. He uses religion when it's convenient for him. He uses religion almost like a superstition. And you see what happens. It continues to produce legalism. And it continues to lead, therefore, first and foremost, into that double-mindedness that comes from self-righteousness. The second thing that we see is that self-righteousness will almost always lead to the condemnation of the innocent. The condemnation of the innocent. Verses 43 through 46 said, Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, go do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. This was an oath that Saul made. And he was willing to kill his own son over the oath. When legalism is at work, we will condemn Those who are actually righteous. Those who are actually innocent before the Lord. That's how legalism works. Because what happens is that extra law gets in the way. And so when people are not abiding by that law, although they haven't broken God's law, they've broken our law, and therefore we become the judge, not God. Legalism will lead to the condemnation of the innocent. It's the natural outflow. And yet hear what Christ says about this. 
In Romans 8, 1 through 4, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When we have Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. That's what Scripture tells us. And yet in legalism, specifically religious legalism, where people are finding their quote-unquote spiritual sanctification in the rules and in the laws, the innocent will be condemned. When the innocent are condemned, it breeds division, it breeds disunity. But here's the thing, because of faith in Christ, notice the contrast here with Jonathan. He doesn't look at his father and say, it's your law, you're foolish. Because he's humble and honors the position of his father, he submits to his father and his response simply is this, here I am, I will die. Because of faith in Christ, here's the difference. Saul was unwilling to confess his sin. But Jonathan, because he's walking by faith, is free to confess his sin or confess his wrongdoing. Yes, he had violated his father's oath, and he can admit that. And he's ready to accept the punishment of that wrongdoing. 1 John 1.9 confirms this when it says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we walk by faith, we're no longer trying to hide our sin. We're able to deal with our sin. Because we understand the gospel in which we're all sinners and we're all in need of God's grace. And therefore, because we're all sinners, again, moving away from the legalistic pattern, all sin is equal on the plane. It all has and ends with death. Therefore, I can confess sin to the Lord. Therefore, Pride no longer holds me because I no longer think that my sin is more attractive than somebody else's sin. Poop is poop. You can't put a ribbon around it and make it not poop. It's still poop. And if it's got a ribbon around it, it doesn't make you want to touch it anymore. That's the truth. Sin is the same way. And when we understand that, we understand that sin is sin. All of a sudden, 
when we see the grace of God, we can confess our sin freely. That's the hope of the gospel. That's why within Christ's church, we can easily be restored when we confess sin to one another. There's a restorative aspect, not a condemning aspect to it. Ironically, it's when we share our sin and we're broken and we're restored that the world sees Christ's light. See, the world likes to think it's tolerant, but then when it violates its rule too far, there's no coming back. Christ saying, listen, you're not too far away from the love of God, and no matter how far you think you violated me, sin is sin, and there's always a way back through Jesus. That's what he's granted. That's the freedom that we have. And so finally, religious legalism leads to conflict. Religious legalism leads to conflict. Faith frees us to live in unity and peace. Faith frees us to live in unity and peace. Notice here that when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all of his enemies. It says in verse 48, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Remember that outward success does not equal necessarily God's approval. Verse 52 goes on, there was hard fighting against the Philistine all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Well, Saul's kingdom and reign was marked by conflict. It was marked by conflict of a man that was more consumed, concerned about pursuing religious legalisms or religious practices than he was about faith in God. When we look and we see that the men of Israel who had been so fearful, not wanting to violate the oath, When they see that Jonathan is up for death, guess what happens? They come to his defense. Verse 45 tells us that as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair on his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day, so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. These men who were loyal to Saul became loyal to Jonathan. Why? Because they saw the contrast between a man who was pursuing himself and a man that was pursuing God. And when we pursue God, there can be unity and peace. But when we pursue our rules, our rituals, in place of faith with God, it will most certainly lead to conflict. The truth is, as much of the disunity within Christ's church for years was based on small, different types of legalisms. Churches that believed the same thing about the gospel but believed differently about how Christ would return would not fellowship together. Why? Because legalisms breed conflict. Where walking in faith breeds unity and peace. So it is 
in Galatians 5.1 as we wrap up this morning. I want us just to leave on this passage. It's a passage that some are familiar with and just want to read it. Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Lord God, may we be a people who rejoice over the freedom that we have in you. May we not be marked and tempted to develop legalisms. May we see that our hope is in you and not in the fact that we've gone to church today or we've read our Bible this week, but it is in who you are. Lord God, we know that your word instructs us to not neglect the gathering, and we need one another. And Father, we need to be in your word too. But God, may we not elevate the outcomes of our faith that as we pursue you, may we not elevate those things to greater importance than you. Father, may we cling and hold to you. And as we do so, may we have a love for your word that drives us deeper into your word. May we have a love for your church that causes us to to be faithful in our fellowship. But God, may we see that those are outcomes of our pursuit of you in faith, not the basis of our pursuit of you. So thank you, Father, that we have this word to instruct us and to remind us that our freedom is in Christ, not in the religious practice. And we ask this in your name. Amen.